You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is a replay from the virtual live broadcast series titled Women's Health 2020, Beyond the Annual Visit, provided by Omnia Education. Before beginning this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Well, welcome. Thank you for attending this Women's Health 2020 Beyond the Annual Visit. We'll be talking today about preventing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in women through lipid management in this new era where we have new evidence and new options for therapy. I'm Dr. Erin Mikos. I'm the Director of Women's Cardiovascular Health at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I'm gonna start us off by talking about prevention and cardiovascular disease in women uh, through female-specific risk-enhancing factors and focusing on LDL-lowering therapy. And then I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Brinton, who's gonna talk about reducing cardiovascular risk through focusing on triglyceride lowering. I'm gonna start with the first case of a patient GS. So she's a 58-year-old South Asian woman with no history of cardiovascular disease. And she's coming in here for a primary prevention assessment because she has a family history of premature coronary disease. Now, like I hope to encourage you to do, we did ask about a pregnancy history and she had three prior pregnancies and three live births. But one of her pregnancies was preterm at 34 weeks and two pregnancies were complicated by gestational diabetes. She currently has hypertension and takes HTTZ, but no smoking or diabetes history. She went through menopause at age 40, and as I mentioned, she had a family history with her mother who had a myocardial infarction and died at age 60. The patient uh, doesn't get regular physical activity in, although she does take care of her grandchildren, which uh, is most of her activity. So in addition to her traditional risk factor of hypertension, I just want to point out these risk enhancers uh, in her case, her history of preterm delivery, gestational diabetes, premature menopause, family history of premature coronary disease, and South Asian race ethnicity, which puts her into a higher risk category. Now on exam, she had an elevated BMI in the overweight category and elevated waist circumference, but her exam was otherwise normal, except for a blood pressure of 136 over 78. Uh, we're not gonna be talking about hypertension management today, but for those on therapy, a goal blood pressure would be less than 130 over 80. So that could be a little better. Um, we're gonna focus on her lipids. Her total cholesterol is high at 210. Triglycerides are elevated at 160. HDL is a little low at 42. Her LDL is uh, mildly elevated at 136. She has an elevated fasting glucose of 105 with an A1C of 5.7, uh, putting her in the prediabetes category. She has an elevated CRP of 2.8. But if you plug in her uh, traditional risk factors into the pooled cohort equations to come up with her 10-year risk, she only comes up with a 10-year risk of 5.2%, which I'll talk about is only a borderline risk category and yet she has a substantial high lifetime risk of more than 39%. So does she need a statin? Well, I'm gonna get back to that in a minute. I first wanna emphasize the importance of considering female specific risk enhancers and risk approach in preventing cardiovascular disease in women. So many of you have seen this data from the American Heart Association statistics about cardiovascular disease mortality in the United States. 
And in the late 18, uh, 1980s and 1990s, uh, things were not going well for women at all. While cardiovascular disease deaths were declining in men, they were actually on the rise in women. We were doing worse for women until 1999, which was the release of the first women-specific cardiovascular prevention guidelines. And shortly after that was the launch of the Go Red for Women campaign. And since that time, there was a steep decline in cardiovascular disease mortality, so we made substantial progress. But despite that uh, encouraging decline, for more than a decade, more women were still dying of cardiovascular disease every year compared to men, until about 2013, when actually women's deaths dipped a little below men. So I don't mind taking second place uh, for cardiovascular mortality. Uh, but I think everybody needs to be concerned what's happening on the right-hand side of the slide, where there's now a plateauing of this a progress we've made with cardiovascular disease mortality, and actually a slight uptick in cardiovascular mortality in both men and women, likely due to the epidemic of obesity, diabetes, and cardiometabolic disease. Furthermore, this progress we've made in decline in cardiovascular mortality in women has not been ex experienced by all age groups. In fact, Middle-aged women, age 45 to 64, like our case patient, actually heart disease and myocardial infarction rates are on the rise with a 7% increase. So these women need more attention. Now, it's important to measure and assess the traditional cardiovascular risk factors. And I want, do want to point out that even among traditional risk factors, things like diabetes and smoking actually confer greater risk in women than they do in men. But there's also unique risk factors that women experience that men do not related to menarche and menopause, hormones and pregnancy. And it's important to ask women about these factors because these can be red flags that may identify a woman at higher cardiovascular risk. So we need to ask about pregnancy history. Women remember their pregnancies very well. We need to ask. And even in our patient who is 58 in postmenopause, who is out of her childbearing years, we see that this risk uh, extends even more than 10 years out from cardiovascular, from their adverse pregnancy. So it's important to still ask at any age. Um, we see that hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, such as preeclampsia and preterm delivery, confer excess cardiovascular risk even more than 10 years out from that pregnancy. And putting together a pool of data from many cohorts, uh, we find that preeclampsia is associated with a fourfold increased risk of heart failure and a twofold increased risk in coronary disease, stroke, and cardiovascular death. And preterm delivery is associated with a twofold increased risk of cardiovascular disease, especially if it occurred before 32 weeks. Now, our patient had gestational diabetes in two of our pregnancies, and that's also an independent risk factor. Uh, in this uh, cohort data from France, a history of gestational diabetes, even after adjustment, is associated with a 25% increased risk of a subsequent cardiovascular disease event. So why are adverse pregnancy outcomes associated with future cardiovascular risk in women? Well, maybe the chicken versus the egg phenomenon. It may be that these women prior to pregnancy had subclinical cardiometabolic disorders related to glucose intolerance or endothelial dysfunction that went unrecognized until they underwent pregnancy as nature's free stress test. And these cardiometabolic abnormalities suddenly became clinically manifest. But it may also be that pregnancy and the uh, preeclampsia, the adverse changes uh, 
with thrombotic and inflammation milieu actually further causes or propagates endothelial uh, dysfunction and leads to excess cardiovascular risk, also in a causal pathway as well. Now, our patient underwent premature menopause, and we see on the slide here on the left, uh, the figure that there's an inverse relationship with the earlier a woman going through menopause with the increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And in fact, in the UK Biobank data, premature menopause before the age of 40, like our patient, was associated with a 36% increased risk of a subsequent cardiovascular event, even after accounting for traditional cardiovascular risk factors. So to reduce cardiovascular risk, I'm going to talk about um, reducing through the LDL lowering pathway, but it is important that prevention is a multifaceted approach and all traditional risk factors should be assessed. Now, as a preventive cardiologist, I would be remiss if I didn't emphasize the importance of lifestyle, that the most important way to prevent cardiovascular disease is following a healthy lifestyle throughout one's lifespan. And when we talk about diet, healthy dietary patterns, such as the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, healthy vegetarian, um, that are enriched in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, uh, increased fiber, decreased sugar or processed uh, foods. And we want to also replace uh, saturated fats with the healthier fats, the polyunsaturated fats that we see in fish and nuts and vegetable oils. Um, there are many healthy dietary patterns. We probably have the most evidence for myocardial infarction reduction with a Mediterranean-style uh, pattern. Now, in addition to diet, it's important to emphasize physical activity. The guidelines recommend uh, moderate to vigorous uh, physical activity, moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity for 150 minutes a week. So this averages out to be about 30 minutes a day for five days a week. Um, and it can be complemented with about one to two sessions a week of strength training. Now, most of the cardiometabolic benefits occur actually with a moderate level intensity activity, which is something like brisk walking is a modern intensity activity that most of our patients can do that can have substantial uh, benefit. And we should encourage all of our patients to be getting in their exercise. Now, when we talk about pharmacotherapy, the HAACC guidelines still emphasize statins as the first-line treatment. So, of course, they're indicated as first-line and secondary prevention. But in primary prevention, uh, we'll use them for prevention of cardiovascular disease in patients with elevated LDL above 190. These are patients who are enriched with familial hypocholesterolemia, FH, who have a high lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. So you would use a high-intensity statin to lower their LDL by more than 50%, regardless of their 10-year risk score. Similarly, patients with diabetes who are aged 40 to 75 would be recommended for moderate-intensity statin at least, regardless of their 10-year risk score. And then patients in primary prevention who are deemed to be at sufficient ASCVD risk after a clinician-patient risk discussion and the next few slides, I'm going to talk about which types of patients may benefit from statin therapy and primary prevention. So the guidelines recommend that you should still start with a 10-year risk score of using the pooled cohort equations for individuals 40 to 75 who don't have diabetes, um, who have an LDL 70 to 189, because above that, they would be indicated for statins anyway. Um, and they acknowledge that this 10-year risk score uh, 
you know, does um, both overestimate and underestimate risk in certain populations. It's important to note that this is just the start of the conversation. We need to start the risk assessment someplace. And then um, through further information, we can refine the risk after that. So using the 10-year risk score, the guidelines then uh, recommend binning patients into four groups based on their 10-year risk. So patients with uh, less than 5% 10-year risk, these are low-risk individuals where generally lifestyle is enough for prevention at this point. On the other hand, those with a 10-year risk score more than 20% are in the high-risk category where statins are recommended on top of lifestyle with the goal of reducing LDL by more than 50%. And then there's the two groups in the middle. There's the borderline risk group, 5 to 7.5% that our patient fell into, and then the intermediate risk group, 7.5 to 20%. So statins are generally recommended for those with a 10-year risk above 7.5%. But again, this is not a mandated statin prescription. This is uh, the start of a shared decision uh, conversation with our patient. So the, the guidelines acknowledge that even after you estimate 10-year risk, there can still be risk uncertainty. So they recommend you review these risk-enhancing factors with the patient. So these are factors that you've already know about the patient clinically, you already have on your hand, which for borderline or intermediate risk individuals would strengthen your decision to start a statin or intensify the statin if they're already on them. So that would include a family history of premature cardiovascular disease, like in our patient, having primary hypercholesterolemia with an LDL above 160. Again, above 190 is already recommended for a statin. Patients with metabolic syndrome or chronic kidney disease, chronic inflammatory conditions. And I highlighted this one because women uh, are more likely to have lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, these autoimmune conditions that increase cardiovascular risk. Furthermore, I was very pleased that the guidelines included female-specific risk enhancers, including premature menopause, like our patient had, and adverse pregnancy outcomes, like preeclampsia. High-risk race ethnicity, like South Asian, of our patients, a risk enhancer, and having elevated levels of other lipid um, biomarkers, like persistently elevated triglycerides and elevated high-sensitivity uh, CRP, which is also more common in women, elevated lipoprotein little a, elevated ApoB, or low ABI. Again, and we want to be thinking about statins in these individuals as well. But the guidelines acknowledge that even after you estimate 10-year risk, and even after you consider risk-enhancing factors, there can still be indecision about the benefits of statins and primary prevention, uh, uncertainty about risk. And in these cases of risk uncertainty, the guidelines said it's reasonable with a 2A indication to get a coronary artery calcium score to help further refine risk. We know from large epidemiology studies that coronary calcium is a much better prognostic marker than risk scores or other types of imaging tests like carotid IMT or brachial activity. Furthermore, those with a calcium score of zero can actually be de-risked or downgraded to a lower risk category. Certainly it's not no risk, but a calcium score of zero, the event rate is only about 0.1% per year. So this may reclassify patients into a lower risk category where they might feel comfortable deferring uh, or postponing statin therapy uh, if they desire, unless other high risk conditions are present. 
On the other hand, any coronary calcium score greater than zero means that there's subclinical atherosclerosis there and a statin would be favored, particularly those who have a high score above 100 or above the 75th percentile for their age and gender. Now, I just want to mention also what about older adults for primary prevention who are aged greater than 75. Well, the guidelines offer a lot of options in this case for primary prevention because we know that aging is heterogeneous. So if you have an older patient who has anticipated a good life expectancy more than 10 years, it is reasonable with a 2B indication to still use statins in older adults above 75 for primary prevention. But on the other hand, if the patient uh, has multiple comorbidities, reduced life expectancy, nursing home bound, uh, it may be reasonable to stop or discontinue statins in these uh, older adults. Furthermore, if there's risk uncertainty for those aged 75 to 80, you could also get a coronary calcium score in, in this group with a 2B indication. Again, most uh, adults in this age range do have atherosclerosis, but uh, the score of zero would certainly be very favorable in this older age group. So the guidelines recognize that even after you estimate 10-year risk, and even after you consider these risk-enhancing factors, there can still be a clinical indecision about the benefits of preventive pharmacotherapy. And so in these cases, the guidelines say, state with a 2A indication that it may be reasonable to measure a coronary artery calcium score to refine risk upwards or downwards to help guide shared decision-making. We know from epidemiology studies that a coronary artery calcium score is a better predictor of risk uh, compared to risk scores, risk factors, as well as uh, superior to other uh, imaging tests such as carotid IMT or brachial reactivity. Now, um, a coronary artery calcium score of zero uh, puts a patient into a much lower risk category. It's not a no risk, uh, but a coronary calcium score of zero is associated with about a 0.1% event rate per year. So this may reclassify patients into a lower group where they may wish to uh, withhold or postpone statin therapy unless higher risk conditions are present. And if there's still risk in decision, you can consider repeating the calcium score in five years. On the other hand, if the calcium score is greater than zero, that means that there's atherosclerosis there. Um, and a statin would generally be recommended, particularly for those with scores above 100 or above the 75th percentile. Uh, this puts patients into a higher risk category where uh, they're likely would derive benefit from statins for primary prevention. Now, what about older adults above the age of 75 for primary prevention? What about statins in them? Well, the guidelines acknowledge that there is a lot of heterogeneity with aging. And some older adults over the age of 75, you know, if they have anticipated uh, 10 years of life expectancy, if they're doing well, it's reasonable with a 2B indication to use statins and primary prevention in them. On the other hand, if you have an older patient with multiple comorbidities, reduced life expectancy, nursing home bound, the guidelines say that it may be reasonable to, to stop statins in those individuals. And finally, among older adults age 75 to 80, if there's still indecision about statins and primary prevention, you can even get a coronary calcium score in, in these adults. Most adults in this age range uh, do have atherosclerosis, but if they did have a calcium score of zero, this would be very favorable. So back to our case patient. So her 10-year risk was 5.2%, so she was in that borderline risk group. 
but she had multiple risk enhancing factors that I reviewed with you. So that would uh, favor initiation of statins. Of course, we wanna emphasize a lifestyle, encourage a healthy diet, uh, consider referring her to nutritionists, uh, um, facilitate increase of physical activity, weight loss, blood pressure control. But she would be recommended also for a modern intensity statin to reduce her LDL by more than 30%. So we engaged this patient in a shared decision-making conversation, but unfortunately she was reluctant to start a statin she was worried about side effects about statins that she had seen on some posts in her Facebook group, and we couldn't dispel those uh, misconceptions. So the patient really desired more information about her own risks. So we got a coronary calcium score in her. And again, coronary calcium scores is not a screening test. It's a risk decision aid. And in this patient, her score came back as 24, which may seem like a low score, but it's actually at the 81st percentile for her age, sex, and race. So we reviewed these images with the patient um, and she agreed to initiate a statin at this time. And this has been my experience in practice with seeing is believing that actually when patients see images of their own uh, coronary arteries, when I showed her that the calcium, and this is the atherosclerosis that caused the heart attack in your mother. Um, we know from prior studies that knowledge of one's calcium score can help increase adherence to both lifestyle and pharmacotherapy. Now, um, this is a pretty common problem in clinical practice where there is reluctance or uh, poor adherence to statin therapy. Um, and we know that statins are safe, efficacious, and well-tolerated. And in clinical trials, there really is no difference in myalgias between statin-treated and placebo patients. But in clinical practice, you know, up to 20 to 30% of patients report statin-associated muscle symptoms and this may be a nocebo effect if, if patients believe something's going to harm them, they're more likely to report adverse symptoms. So it's important to educate patients about the benefits. Statins are very effective in reducing events, both uh, primary prevention and in secondary prevention across all LDL levels. And reassure about safety. The risk of adverse, serious adverse events is very low. The risk of a serious muscle injury, including rhabdo, is, is less than 0.1%. The risk of serious hepatotoxicity is you know, one in 100,000. There is a very modest increased risk of newly diagnosed diabetes mellitus, but this is in patients um, who were already glucose intolerance of pre-diabetic anyway. It doesn't take someone who is euglycemic and make them diabetic. Uh, this was uh, more of a chemical diagnosis of diabetes where people who are on the pathway there already uh, cross over to be di diabetic. That being said, we know that statins benefit this group with redu reduced vascular events. Unfortunately, a large proportion of patients do stop their statins within one to two years after initiation, and this is associated with increased cardiovascular risk. Now I'm gonna move on to our second case, uh, the patient CR. She's a 68-year-old Hispanic woman with a 20-year history of type two diabetes. She also has hypertension and dyslipidemia but no clinical history of cardiovascular disease. Although I will note that she had a, a non-gated chest CT a couple of years ago when she was being evaluated for pneumonia. And the radiologist commented that there was severe coronary artery calcifications on her CT. And I think this is an important point. Um, you know, this is not the same as a calcium score, but I always um, look through all my patients' radiologic uh, imaging reports uh, to look for some kind of qualitative comment about coronary calcium, because we know if it's visible, it's certainly not a score of zero. And this is disease uh, and uh, cardiovascular risk is really on a spectrum between primary and secondary prevention. 
And many patients with subclinical disease, if it's significant, have similar uh, event rates compared to secondary prevention patients. So I would uh, start to be worried that she's actually more like a secondary prevention patient. Now, she doesn't have a family history of premature coronary disease. Her blood pressure uh, could still be optimized at 148 over 80, as well as she has an elevated BMI and elevated waist circumference. Now, talking about her lipids, so her total cholesterol is 206. Her triglycerides are 300, um, so that's uh, elevated. Her HDL is 42. Her LDL is 104, and this is on a pravastatin 10. She also has an A1C of 7.3, so her uh, diabetes control could be a little better as well. Um, she takes uh, antihypertensive medications and metformin. But um, regarding to her lipid-lowering therapy, she's on pravastatin 10 with an LDL 104. Does she need any further changes to her lipid-lowering therapy? So what the guidelines say is in patients with diabetes, with secondary prevention for those who have established cardiovascular disease or high-risk primary prevention, such as having a 10-year risk more than 20% or multiple cardiovascular disease risk factors, these patients would be recommended for a high-intensity statin to reduce LDL by more than 50%, like in our patient. In patients who have diabetes uh, who are aged 40 to 75 uh, but don't have other major risk factors, uh, it's still reasonable uh, to use a moderate-intensity statin. And then in younger adults under the age of 40 um, with diabetes and as part of a, a clinician-patient risk discussion, I would also consider using a statin in younger uh, patients with diabetes as well. And if patients can't use the recommended intensity or can't tolerate that, they should uh, use the maximum tolerated statin dose. So in addition to the traditional ASCVD risk factors, there's also diabetes-specific risk enhancers, such as having diabetes for longer duration, albinuria, uh, CKD, retinopathy, neuropathy, or a low ABI that would also favor using a high-intensity statin. So I've been talking about statin intensities. Um, our patient was on Prava-10, which is a low-intensity statin. With a history of with diabetes, she should be at least on a moderate-intensity statin, and you can see the list of them on the slide. But our patient has uh, multiple ASCVD risk factors and also has subclinical atherosclerosis and really should be on a high-intensity statin uh, to reduce LDL by more than 50%. And so that's a Torva 40 or 80 or Resuva 20 or 40 uh, should be used in our patient. So in summary, to reduce cardiovascular risk uh, for the LDL pathway, they should be on the optimal statin dose. Now, I just talked about primary prevention in this talk, but I will mention for secondary prevention, if the LDL is still above a threshold of 70, uh, patients should be added uh, azetamide on top of the maximal intensity statin. And if the LDL is still above a threshold of 70 with statins plus azetamide, a PCSK9 inhibitor should be added uh, as well to reduce cardiovascular risk. So once we optimize the LDL pathway, we can't forget to optimize the triglyceride-related pathway, such as using icosapent ethyl in secondary prevention or patients with diabetes like our patient who have risk factors and have triglycerides above 150. And I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, uh, Dr. Brinton, who's going to talk about reducing cardiovascular risk through the triglyceride-lowering pathway. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mikos, for that very kind introduction. Now we're going to turn to the topic, CVD risk reduction through triglyceride-lowering therapy. You recall this case, which Dr. Mikos has introduced, 
and the question, does this patient need any change to her lipid-lowering therapy? So uh, she's on provostatin, changed to resuvastatin 20, so she's on a, a pretty decent dose of a statin. Uh, she comes back with her uh, lab testing on this current regimen, and you'll see that her triglycerides are still a little bit ele elevated at 225. HDL actually rather low for a woman at 44. LDL now nicely controlled at 74, and her A1C is pretty decent. So she's in, in reasonable shape here on uh, resuvastatin 20, so a good dose of a good statin, a pretty good-looking uh, lipid panel, except the triglycerides are high and the HDL is low. And of course, a lot of times we have a tendency to ne neglect this, say, well, the LDL is fine, so what could be wrong? Well, of course, what could be wrong is that she has a substantial residual risk that I think we really need to address. And we have, of course, some very good data uh, to show why and how we're going to address uh, this issue. So this just reminds us of the fact that uh, patients with even just a little bit of triglyceride elevation, uh, despite good LDL control with a statin, still have a lot of risk. I mean, this is a 41% higher risk uh, just by having a triglyceride over 150. And of course, 150 is a level that we don't normally think of as being too high. So I think we have to recalibrate our approach here and realize this just a tiny little elevation of triglycerides, despite appropriate statin therapy, can in fact substantially elevate ASCVD risk. This is also a very, very interesting uh, piece of data. Here we see the relationship between triglycerides and CVD risk, and you'll see that it doesn't have to be above 200 to elevate the risk. In fact, uh, a lot of the correlation, a lot of the increase in risk with triglycerides starts uh, well below 100, which is really strange. You know, we tend to think of 100 as being kind of the magic cutoff. I think the bottom line here is that there is no one universal cutoff for triglycerides and CVD risk, but rather uh, well into the normal range, there begins to be an uptick in CVD risk. And then that continues through what we have normally not considered to be too elevated. And yes, there's a little bit further elevation above 200, but the correlation between triglycerides and CVD risk is very strong and in a range that is really quite low. So again, we need to reset our thinking about how we approach triglyceride elevation in the setting of our traditional statin monotherapy. Uh, this is a, a listing of cutoffs for fasting triglycerides. Optimal here is stated as less than 100. I think that's a reasonable cutoff, despite the data that I just showed you that suggested that even maybe a little bit below 100, you still have uh, some elevation of risk. And then these shades of gray above 100, uh, certainly we need to treat triglycerides over 500. There's no question about that. But in the 200 to 500 range, there's a lot of elevation of risk. And even the 100 to 200 range, a lot of elevation of risk. And note that most of our data here, our official cutoffs are in the fasting triglyceride uh, sphere. Uh, Non-fasting triglycerides are fine, but I have a preference to measure fasting triglycerides as kind of my benchmark, my routine assessment, because most of the data that we have, including the data that I just showed you, are in the fasting uh, mode after an overnight fast, uh, 10 to 12 hours, where I think we get a slightly more precise measurement. Triglycerides are too variable as it is. And I think that uh, non-fasting, although that's terrific, it's not very helpful, I don't think, for making a decision about an individual patient. 
So what do we have in terms of, of guidance regarding uh, statin adjuncts, fibrates, and niacin? Well, we've got some trials there shown on the, in the box on the left, and you see that, the, uh, that none of these trials actually showed a statistically significant benefit. And so uh, we just haven't been able to see that adding either fibrate or niacin to a statin uh, actually reduces ASCVD events. Now, there's some potential nuance there, there's some uh, subgroup analyses, but these data are rather unimpressive. So I'm not saying we can't use fibrates or niacin, but what I'm saying is that the data for ASCVD reduction with these two agents added to a statin is really not very robust and, and in fact is not recommended uh, by our current, current guidelines. Uh, now, what about omega-3s? Well, we have a lot of trials of omega-3s. Here are two of them, Ascend and Vital, and uh, they're both using a gram a day of EPA plus DHA, and uh, both of them failed to meet their primary endpoint. So at first glance, the data for omega-3 as an adjunct, in most of the cases these patients were taking statin, again, is really not very impressive, but notice that it's a combination of EPA plus DHA, and notice that the dose is rather low. This is not a prescription dose of four grams a day. It's, it's really kind of more of a dietary supplement dose of just one gram a day. So now let's look at the JELUS trial. This is a trial that many of you may not be familiar with. It's, it's a trial that came out many years ago and uh, really was so surprising that people, I think, just brushed it off and said, well, that can't be true. It was a, a trial of a brand new drug. In fact, we didn't even have the drug available in the US at the time of this trial. Uh, pure EPA a product, ethyl ester of pure EPA, and uh, here it was given at 1.8 grams a day, which is an intermediate dose, certainly higher than one, especially if you're looking at EPA content, uh, but less than our prescription doses of four grams a day. But JELUS was very impressive. JELUS, uh, first of all, interestingly, recruited patients for high LDL, then treated everybody with a statin according to Japanese guidelines. And then they randomly allocated them to get this 1.8 grams of pure EPA or uh, control. It was actually an open label study, but blinded uh, assessment of endpoints. And you can see a 19% uh, relative risk reduction, which was highly statistically significant. And at the time, actually, and for many, many years thereafter, a record for any drug added to a statin, 19% relative risk reduction, and even higher if you focused on the subgroup of those who had a high triglyceride and a low HDL, actually suggesting your 53% relative risk reduction. Small numbers, but, but impressive in that it looks like it works even better if we focus on the people that you and I would naturally think to treat with an omega-3, which would be people with high triglycerides. And then, of course, they generally will have a low HDL as well. So very impressive data from several years ago. And the question was, is this a, a true result? Is this just a fluke? It was a single study, a one-off. Uh, what's the story? Well, so then we go to reduce it, which used uh, virtually identical pure EPA ethyl ester. Uh, we call it icosapenethyl and uh, used it at a full dose of four grams a day. This time now, it was a population suggested for or selected for elevated triglycerides of, of 135 up to 500. So we have those very interesting data with JELUS, but the question is, are they reproducible? So not too long after the JELUS trial was published, uh, some of us got together and said, let's see if we can reproduce this, but in a more universal setting rather than using the Japanese cutoffs for statin therapy, rather than doing an open label trial, rather than confining ourselves to just a single country, 
let's do an international trial across the whole world. Uh, let's select people not for high cholesterol, but rather for triglycerides elevated. And, and our, our decision was to do it above 150, but they could be within 90% of that. So that ended up being 135 just by happenstance. And a 135 to 500 for baseline fasting triglycerides. Now that was pretty bold to go into that lower range because we didn't think that there was uh, much happening down below 200, but that was the, the area that we chose to, to uh, select for the trial. And uh, using four grams a day of the pure EPA ethyl ester, and uh, you all know these results, they were very dramatic, a 25% relative risk reduction with the primary endpoint, very similar reduction with the key secondary endpoint, which is uh, the hard endpoints. And um, remember, these are patients, as you see in the box there in the middle, who were uh, already on a statin, they had to be on a statin, and they had to have an LDL below 100. So you're thinking, that's pretty good control of LDL cholesterol. They're on a statin. Most of them are on moderate to high-intensity statin therapy, and yet their triglycerides are slightly elevated. Uh, are they at high risk? Well, we've already discussed that. Can that risk be reduced? Here you see the evidence, really very dramatic. Uh, a breakthrough trial, I think, a game changer, a paradigm shift in terms of how we want to treat. And you're looking at the data right here. I think very, very important to have these data firmly in our mind. Uh, the total event data were, of course, very impressive. What I just showed you was time to first event. There were, of course, recurrent events in many of the patients. And if you're treating 1,000 patients, uh, this happens to be the U.S. subset, but very similar data for the international uh, cohort. And what you see is hundreds of events prevented by simply treating uh, with four grams a day of ethyl for five years, including a, a, a reduction in total mortality. In the U U.S. cohort, that was actually statistically significant, so that's shown here. So really very impressive data, a very low number needed to treat. Uh, this is actually the most impressive of all the statin adjunct trials, and there have been quite a few, as you know, uh, in the recent years. Um, and then this shows a prediction of how many uh, events might be prevented. Uh, if we're looking at the primary and secondary composite endpoint uh, data from Reduce It, so on the left-hand side, the primary composite endpoints, the right-hand side, the secondary uh, endpoints, uh, a little bit fewer, of course, because we're excluding things like uh, angina. And uh, what we have here is really very impressive. Uh, we have both initial events in yellow, sub uh, subsequent events or total events, well, subsequent events in blue, total events is the total height of the bar. And what you see here is, I think, uh, very convincing that we're preventing hundreds of thousands of events uh, by simply implementing icosapenethyl in these patients who already have their LDL controlled on a statin, but have just a slightly elevated triglyceride. Um, here we're looking at some more subgroup data. On the left-hand side, we see uh, patients without established CVD. They simply had to have diabetes plus other risk factors. Uh, very nice risk reduction. Patients with established CVD, prior event, and with diabetes, much higher risk, much higher absolute risk reduction. And then we had patients who had established CVD without diabetes, roughly one-third in each of these groups. And in all three cases, you can see that there is a dramatic risk reduction, uh, ample evidence that all three categories of patients uh, should be treated, primary, pre primary prevention with diabetes, secondary prevention without diabetes, and the two together. Now, this is very, very interesting. As a lipidologist, I'm kind of embarrassed to show you this because you know, we're driven by numbers, right? Uh, everybody's driven by numbers. And if you look at the, uh, the on-treatment triglyceride, not really triglyceride decreased so much. It was 
reasonable, but not very dramatic. It was actually less than a 20% decrease. If you look at the on-treatment triglyceride, it did not matter if the patients got below 150 or didn't. And that is very surprising. Those curves are right on top of each other. And so we thought that Reducer was going to give us a, a goal for triglycerides. How low should your triglycerides be? Well, it doesn't give us a goal. What it gives us is the notion that if your triglycerides are even just a little bit elevated, and by the way, the, the benefit did not vary whether the triglycerides were 135 to 150, 150 to 200, or 200 and higher, there was equal benefit, comparable benefit across the entire spectrum of baseline triglycerides. Neither that made a difference, nor did on-treatment triglyceride make a difference. So we're, we're selecting patients for slightly elevated triglycerides, but we don't really have to worry about what their triglycerides do uh, when they're on treatment, which is a little odd, but those are the data. That's what we've got, and I think that has to be our new treatment paradigm. We have to go with what we saw. So now, what about on-treatment uh, EPA levels? Well, uh, as you can see in this figure, the left-hand side there, we've got a little yellow arrow that says, uh, here's the EPA level uh, on placebo, and it's, it's uh, very low. It's, it's well below 50. And, uh, and then once we give people four grams a day of pure uh, EPA, nitrosopenethyl, uh, their levels go way up into the, to the mid-100s. So that's the medians. Uh, but then, of course, we've got this hazard ratio of cardiovascular event reductions, and that's the curve that you see here. So uh, if the placebo folks are, are, are set a reference of 1.0, then how much of a risk reduction was there with the icosapenethyl? And you can see that there's a very nice risk reduction. It's uh, uh, around a quarter or so on average. But notice that it has a lot to do with the on-treatment EPA levels. And the higher the achieved EPA level during the trial, the greater the relative risk reduction. And that, of course, makes a lot of sense, but it does suggest that maybe we need to start measuring EPA levels if we're treating patients with eicosapenethyl. And the distribution curves, I wish we had them on the slide to show you, but the distribution curves basically don't overlap. So unless you're uh, treating somebody who uh, is a fisherman by trade and they're you know, eating fish three times a day, or maybe somebody from Japan, uh, that has a very, very high fish intake, um, without uh, IPE treatment, we're just not going to see uh, much of an EPA level. And so you need to put the patients on icosapenethyl to get this elevation. And on the treatment, there's, they're going to have a pretty good level and a pretty good risk reduction. So we don't have to measure EPA levels, but it suggests that we might want to consider that uh, in the future. So how did this happen? What's the mechanism for this? Well, there are lots of mechanisms that we think apply here. Um, there is an effect on arrhythmias, although it's a little bit of a two-edged sword. Uh, ventricular arrhythmias, we think, go down. Atrial arrhythmias actually tend to go up, not only with the cosopenethyl, but also with a combination of EPA plus DHA. So our tried and true um, generic form of our EPA plus uh, DHA uh, ethyl ester uh, also has that same issue. So a little bit of an uptick in atrial arrhythmias, down, uh, down regulation of the ventricular arrhythmias. There are, of course, many anti-atherogenic uh, uh, factors here, mechanisms. We have uh, data from a, a CT angiography trial in which uh, we saw very dramatically how the plaque improves with icosapenethyl four grams a day. <clears throat> you see a long list of, of lipid effects and lipoprotein effects. We're actually not so sure how important these are because none of them actually predicted the, the benefit. Not only the triglycerides, but the other lipid effects did not predict it. There's an antithrombotic effect, a little bit hard to measure, but we think that contributes to this. So 
antiplatelet effect. There's certainly an anti-inflammatory effect, and you see lots of factors listed on the slide here. Uh, we're really not sure exactly how many of these contributed how much. We're guessing that all of the above actually had played some role, but it's going to take us a lot of time to tease this out. There's even a slight benefit in blood pressure because of these uh, pro-endothelial effects. So very, very fascinating question. We don't really have a good answer here. Now, what about supplements? Let's just go to the grocery store, get some supplements. Well, <laughs> there are a lot of people taking them, but there's no over-the-counter fish oil supplement in the U.S. And why is that important? Because over-the-counter, as you know, is regulated by the FDA. So what we buy in the grocery store is not FDA regulated. We only have prescription and dietary supplement. And uh, there's a lot of saturated fat, a lot of stuff in them. The FDA is really not paying much attention to the manufacturing process or anything. They're not recommended for this reason. They're not recommended to treat disease. Benefits are claimed for a lot of things, but in fact have really been found for none. So supplements are a problem here. Here we see the saturated fat data. Uh, more than a third of the content of leading fish oil supplements actually can be saturated fat. Do we really want to be taking saturated fat? Um, there's some issues with pesticides and, and all sorts of stuff in the dietary supplements. So I really do not recommend that we have our patients take this. Uh, it, it may not be terribly harmful if they're taking small doses, but I, I don't recommend uh, fish oil supplements. In fact, I tell my patients to go off them. Uh, this uh, slide just illustrates the fact that um, if you want to get uh, uh, 3.8 grams a day of EPA, which is what we're looking at with the um, with the Reduce-It trial, you've got to take a handful of supplements rather than taking four of the uh, prescription capsules. So that's a problem. So icosapentaethyl, which is prescription only, it's now indicated by the FDA for CBD re reduction. As you know, in the bottom of the slide here, we see the prior indication, which was four triglycerides over 500, presumably to help prevent acute uh, pancreatitis. But the new and very exciting indication by the FDA is that um, uh, if the triglycerides, they say, uh, with or without fasting are over 150, so they they uh, fudged a little from what we did in the reduce it trial, but that's okay. Just a random fasting, or I mean, random triglyceride, not fasting, but just random triglyceride over 150 uh, would qualify the patient, and then they would have to have either a prior event or diabetes plus other risk factors. And most of the patients with diabetes have those risk factors. Uh, then they would be qualified per the FDA indication to take eicosapentaethyl for prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And you've seen the data, they're really very, very impressive. Now, uh, the FDA is not alone in this, of course. Lots of professional societies have, have weighed in on this. Uh, the American Diabetes Association, the European Society for Cardiology, National Lipid Association, American Heart Association. I had the good fortune of helping write the AHA statement on this. Uh, basically, all in sync. We're all on the same page here in terms of uh, triglycerides, either, either over 135 fasting or over 150 uh, random triglyceride levels. And icosapentaethyl, four grams a day, uh, on top of appropriate statin therapy. Uh, sometimes we're saying maximally tolerated statin therapy. Certainly, we want to use a high enough dose of a statin to get that LDL to goal. So treat LDL to goal with a statin, then add icosapentaethyl if the triglycerides remain slightly elevated in the 135 to 500 or 150 to 500, depending on fasting or non-fasting uh, levels. So now we've got a, a paradigm shift, and here's the, the schematic for the paradigm. We have across the top here optimized statin therapy. If we want further LDL lowering, we can certainly go to ezetimibe and then the PCSK9s and then not official part of the guideline, but of course we've got a new kid on the block, benpidoic acid. We might insert that between ezetimibe and the PCSK9s. But now let's go vertically on this slide. 
if we've got somebody with an LDL that is actually controlled on the statin therapy, we may not want to try to reduce the LDL cholesterol further. What we may want to do is go straight to icosabenethyl if the triglycerides are elevated. So at the, at the beginning point here, optimized statin therapy, the question is, is the LDL still a little too high? If so, we're going to do extra LDL lowering. And then the question is, well, is the triglyceride a little too high? And remember, we're talking about 135 fasting or 150 non-fasting. That's not very high, but that's high enough that we're now strongly recommending that we go straight to icosabenethyl because that's where we have such remarkable data. And it's not just a single trial, right? Reduce it uh, was actually corroborating what we saw in Jealous. So we've got, I think, uh, robust enough data to make this uh, recommendation seriously. And you see that we've got recommendations already uh, echoing what I'm showing you here. So to summarize, we've got uh, uh, lots of guidelines. We've got the 2018 multi-society guidelines, uh, which were cholesterol guidelines. And um, I hate to say this, but I wouldn't necessarily take the triglyceride portion of those guidelines terribly seriously because they're a very minor component. I think if you wanna look at uh, triglyceride recommendations, I think you want to look elsewhere. But the cholesterol part of that 2018 guideline, yes, very good. Um, and of course, we've got lifestyle and, and, and on-treatment LDL is going to guide us. We, we have either a goal or a threshold for LDL. That's all terrific. Uh, by the way, it's the same number for threshold or goal. It doesn't really matter what, what term we use. And azetamide and PCSK9 antibodies. And then, of course, we're going to have, um, we already have bepidoic acid as another adjunct there. We also are going to have a new method of, of inhibiting PCSK9. So we've got a lot of, of great tools for LDL, right? And then when we get to the triglyceride side, we're going to turn to the new guidelines, the new statements that I just reviewed. That's really where the, the, the action is as far as triglyceride is concerned. Uh, we're going to select our patients for slightly elevated triglycerides. And what we're going to do is then look for extra risk with either a prior event or with diabetes plus other risk factors. So we want to enrich the risk uh, before we just go ahead and treat everybody. We're not going to do that. Uh, four grams a day of icosapenethyl is certainly the recommendation based on the data we said. We're not recommending uh, the, uh, the um, uh, dietary supplement omega-3s, there's just no data for that, and it's probably not worthwhile to even take them. And, um, and then remember, <laughs> don't give up on statins, please. Uh, all of the data for reduce it with, with patients on statins, and of course, we can't always succeed, but oftentimes we can. So going back and trying statins again is, is uh, usually uh, very helpful. It's always worthwhile to give it a try. And then um, going to uh, Zetamibe or other LDL adjuncts as needed and going to icosapenethyl. And again, not so much for triglyceride lowering per se, but because we know that it works uh, across a broad range of baseline triglycerides and really independent of the on-treatment triglyceride levels. So thank you very much for your attention. And uh, let's now go to uh, question and answer. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Omnia. Thank you for listening.